So today we have a very special guest on the show. Uh, when most people think of Wales, they think of perhaps Tom Jones or Catherine Zeta-Jones. For me, I think of a man who gave me my start in in cricket, a man by the name of Brian Nogatroy, journalist and media manager extraordinaire. He joins me today from Dubai. Welcome, Brian. Lovely to see you. Dave, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you. Rolling back the years, goodness me. You gave me unrealistic expectations as to how much fun you could actually have at work. Was it that it was just you could get away with more back in those days or was it because all of us just had a particular sense of humour? I'm trying to put my finger on why we had such a good time. It was that we could get away with a lot more in those days. <laughs> yes, there's no question about that. Well, look, I mean, the bottom line was, first and foremost, when you came along to the ACB, you could count, uh, you could count the number of employees um, that worked at uh, the cricket board. Um, I wouldn't say on the fingers of two hands, but you could count them certainly on the fingers of four or five hands. They were very, there was a very limited number of people who worked there, so everyone knew everyone. And so as a result of that, it really did engender something of a family atmosphere, I suppose. Um, I, I've been back to Cricket Australia in, in subsequent years and, and have been astonished with the numbers of people who are employed there now. But that's not to decry that fact at all, because it's obviously a much, much bigger business than it was when, when you and I first worked there, you know, well over 20 years ago. But certainly what helped was the fact that uh, it was a much smaller environment when, um, when you and I started there. And as a result of that, everyone knew everyone. So it was a, it was a lot more relaxed, I think. Yeah, relaxed, perhaps too relaxed with, with some of our colleagues who I, uh, I think the other thing is that we were, we were young. I remember uh, one of our colleagues. Very nice was, of you to say that. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> but I think your, your humour was was more in line with the, uh, I mean, it was sharp, but it was, it was a little bit of dad humor. My first, the first time I ever met you, you, your little desk area had a, an American $1 bill taped to the, to the upright sort of post. And I had no idea what it was there for. I didn't think to ask. And I went up to meet you and said, Oh, hi, Brian, I'm, I'm David. And you looked at me and said, look, this is the, this is the problem with all you Australians." They said, I've only just met you and you've already passed the buck. I actually had one of those dollar bills as well um, taped over my office door when I worked for uh, the ECB, the England and Wales Cricket Board, um, and nobody got the joke there either, sadly. Um, well, I got it, and I thought, this is, this is good. I'm going to enjoy working with this guy. Yeah, you know, we had a lot of fun. We had a lot of fun. I, I mentioned at the outset of this chat about the laminating machine, and um, it makes me chuckle to think back uh, how simplistic the whole operation was back then nowadays accreditation for um for an international cricket match or even a domestic cricket match in australia it really it really is an incredible operation whereas when um when you and i were doing it most of the applications we would receive for uh, accreditations would be on handwritten pieces of paper yeah but I can remember, and I'm sure you, you remember as well, wasting countless weekends as the season got close, yeah. sitting in the office uh, in front of a laminating machine, just going through things. But of course, that gave us the opportunity to have a bit of fun. At, uh, one name I'll throw at you here is um, a very good friend of mine, fantastic cricket author, Ken Peace. Now, most journalists would send in passport photos. Ken was different. Ken would, um, for some reason, send in photos of him with a particular celebrity. 
I never understood. Was that an ego thing? Was he trying I, to prove I, I, that he I'm knew I'm not sure. Them? I'm not sure. But the one that always sticks in my mind is um, the photo he sent in of him shaking hands with Tony Libradori, the Western Bulldogs footballer. So just for a laugh, if you remember, what we did was um, cut out Libba's headshot uh, out of the photo and put that on Ken's pass instead. And uh, Ken wasn't particularly happy with that. So uh, I seem to remember what we then did was cut out a photo of the Cookie Monster from Sesame Street and put that on his pass yeah, instead. Yeah, we did. And Ken wasn't particularly happy with that either. So I seem to remember, I think this might have been your initiative, actually. I seem to remember you, you cut out a photo of Kylie Minogue and, uh, and put that on his pass instead. So, I did. Um, and the funny thing was that he had to use that for the whole season. So for every time he entered the ground, he had to use that. So I just love the level of professionalism that didn't quite exist yet, that that was, that was a legitimate security document that he had to... Yeah. I think we landed on... Uh, we, by the next year, he just sort of let it go and, and yeah. he sort of accepted that we were going to do it to him every yeah. year. And by the end of it, I think we picked just a, a headshot of a horse just just a thoroughbred racehorse with a serious look on its face <laughs> and that was what he had to flash every time he went to a Sheffield Shield game yeah, or a yeah. test match but yeah. I used to have accreditation when I was a kid and my dad was commentating um on channel seven at the tennis but I had I had access all areas accreditation for the Australian Open for when, as, a, as a 10 year old because yeah. I was with him when he got his pass and then people were like oh you're a nice kid do you want a pass do you want to just go wherever you want and yes. I was like, yes, that sounds pretty good. So I sat in the commentary box and, and just went wherever I wanted for the first three or four years that the Australian Open was at what was it's a, it's a different world, isn't it? It really is. Um, you know, is. We, we, we basically had a lot more, uh, we had a lot more wiggle room, a lot more scope. We, we, we ran the, um, the people at uh, the ACB, you know, the, there were very few of us, but we were trusted to run the operation. I mean, from my point of view as a media manager, it's incredible now when I look back. Um, but um, more often than not, I was actually the media manager for not only uh, the Australian team, but also the visiting teams as well. And also, and also the ICC match referee, because all these teams, they all travel with media managers now. In those days, they didn't. So to really and truly, um, they needed some form of organization um, and, and they, relied on, they relied on me to do it. Um, as, well, as team as management as well, really. I mean, some, some of it was team management. They often weren't quite, or they just didn't understand the local landscape. Yeah, they, well, they didn't they understand. Just... That was basically, most of them were either former players or administrators and a trip to Australia was a bit of a jolly, really. So, so um, they got there and didn't know what they were doing. But I yes. remember finding in the, in the storage cage underneath 60 Jollymont, like a huge pile of pads that had been painted green, Pakistan green. Yes. And they've clearly showed up with the wrong color or something. And someone's job has been to paint those with house paint so that they roughly look the right color. I mean, it so easily could have been me. That was the type of job that I would have usually been doing. Pakistan, I, I remember the test match in Hobart, which was Adam Gilchrist's second test match where he and Justin Langer uh, put on over 200 to win that match against Pakistan. It was a, really an unwinnable match. I remember at the end of the match, because they had no media manager, one of my jobs was to, to go and get the visiting captain or player or whoever it may be and uh, bring them up to the press conference, which was in this tiny little dining room above the home dressing room uh, at uh, Bell Reve Oval. 
And um, it, was a, it was a real case of deja vu for me, that one, because the previous, um, the previous summer, I'd been with the England cricket team and England had lost a game there at Belle Reeve and they hadn't just lost the game, they'd been absolutely annihilated. They'd set Australia A 375 in 75 overs and they lost by nine wickets with 15 overs to spare. Uh, it was an absolute road to the surface. And I, I remember uh, on that last day uh, at lunch, I, I went into the dressing room and Australia A, even at that stage, were uh, one for 120 in 20 overs. So they were flying. Greg Blewett got a double hundred, but uh, they were flying even at lunch. And I remember Darren Goff, uh, he was playing for England, but he wasn't playing in that match. The sponsors at the time, who were Vodafone, they were trying to mock up a Christmas photo of one of the players dressed as Father Christmas. And Darren Goff was the one. So they'd done the photo and then Goffey comes into the dressing room and he, he sort of puts on his Father Christmas voice and goes, ho, 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 Angus Fraser, what do I bring you for Christmas? I bring you some wickets. <laughs> so I remember that. And then T, T comes along. Um, and in that afternoon session, Australia A had scored 180 in 30 overs without losing a wicket. So they were one for 300 at the tea break. And so... David Lloyd, the coach at lunch, had come in and tried to encourage his players. And I remember he came in at the tea break and said, oh, it's not your job that's on the line, is it? You're bloody useless. And then walked out again. So that was, that was, that was his team talk at, uh, at, uh, at tea. And then I remember at the end of the game, you could literally hear a pin drop in the dressing room. Australia A had won the match by nine wickets with 15 overs to spare. A complete disaster. And the only thing you could hear when you went into the dressing room, and it's a terrible part of the job of being a media manager. It's almost, it's almost like um, encroaching on a funeral, really. When you go into a dressing room and the team, team's lost, but still your job is to somehow find a victim to have to go and um, justify that defeat to the media. So I, there I was in the dressing room. And the only thing you could hear was the sound of uh, the zippers on bags being shut. And then 12 months later, I go into the same dressing room uh, and it's Pakistan in the dressing room this time. And I had to go and get Wazim Akram for the, the post-match press conference. And remember, Australia was five for 130, chasing 369. You don't win games like that. You never win games like that. But they did. And um, I went in and it hit me. Again, the complete silence in the dressing room. And the only thing you could hear was just the sound of, of zips shutting on bags and that was it you know my memory of the, of the few times i was down with the some of those teams and those tours the thing that struck me about cricket as opposed to some of the other sports that i've been around was that the tours are so long you kind of come across people who are on this journey together and what i was really surprised by was that other sports you kind of bounce back and things go up and down quite quickly but i remember encountering touring teams where clearly the whole tour was going badly and you just sort of walked in at one moment of this entire thing that was just like a bad, a bad experience. And um, it was interesting to me that you could tell that there was this pervasive sort of, this just isn't working. It's not going to work. We just need to get this done and then go home. I was kind of surprised that that was the feeling that, that you could really sense that sometimes. Did you, did you sort of sense that on some of those tours as well with the visiting teams? All of the tours on the visiting teams, actually. <laughs> Every single one. Teams coming to Australia, it was an absolute 
hell in a handcart for teams to to have to uh, have to tour Australia because they'd always play the first match in Brisbane. Um, it was it, it was a fortress. Uh, never, Australia never lost there. So you'd open the tour and get thrashed in Brisbane. Then you'd go somewhere else, probably Adelaide. You get thrashed there. Then you'd play. Um, then you'd play the back-to-back tests uh, in um, uh, Melbourne and Sydney. You'd lose there as well. Uh, you know, it, it really was. It it was like a washing machine for these teams to have to go there and um, and lose because it was an incredibly talented time for for Australian cricket. When you think of some of the players. Um, you think of people like Brad Hodge, who only played a handful of tests. You know, in another era, he would have played 50 or 60. Um, Stuart Law played one test. Ian Harvey didn't play any tests at all. Um, and, and so the list goes on. There's so many, so many cricketers from that era for Australia who, you know, you think of Stuart McGill, he got over 200 test wickets. But in another era, he would have, he would have played many, many more tests, but for, but for Shane Warne. Um, it, the amount of talent around the Australian cricket team at that time was just remarkable. But there were still lots of lots of funny moments. Uh, I'll never forget Inzamam's press conference in that test match in Hobart. In, he conducted the whole press conference through the team manager who acted as interpreter. And, um, you know, it was, just, it was just hilarious because he's this big, huge man and he had a microphone in front of him. Someone would ask him the question. The team manager would lean over to him, whisper in his ear, and then he would whisper back to the team manager and the team manager would lean forward into the microphone. And I always remember Robert Craddock of the Courier Mail asked a question. Um, he said, Inzaman, you, you've got 100 today, well done. Um, you, you're quite demonstrative when you got that 100. You, you were celebrating and um, you know, we, we don't often see you celebrate. You know, you're, um, you're usually, usually very, very calm. And so Inzaman leans across to the team manager and listens to the, the question. And then, and then he whispers back in the team manager's ear. And uh, Yawa, Yawa Saeed, who's now, now passed away, sadly, the Pakistan team manager, he, he leaned forward to the microphone and he said, Inzamam says he is quiet, even in his own house. <laughs> that was the answer. And... Um, yeah, all, all, all quite, and the press conference. Everyone profound just answer, though. I, I like that. It's a very profound uh, answer. But you yes. mentioned before the, the, the idea of crossing from one dressing room to the other. I mean, it, you did that yourself career-wise in terms of being the ECB media manager and then suddenly changing completely, moving to Australia oh, yes. and taking a similar role for the oh, ECB. Yes. I mean, oh, yes. Was that a surprise to, to people who knew you or was that something that had always been an aspiration of yours or how no, did it come no, about? It was, it was, it, it was, it happened completely by accident, actually. As far as my journalistic career was concerned, I started off as a broadcaster and I was commentating um, in the days before the internet. And yes, there were days before the internet. Um, the way people got um, cricket scores in the UK if they weren't near um, a radio or a television was they would ring a premium rate telephone number. They could dial a number and they would hear commentary. And I was the one providing the commentary alongside Alan Knott, Clive Lloyd, and uh, a broadcaster who's now passed away, sadly, Ralph Della. So I was employed by this company called um, Rapid Cricket Line, who were part of the William Hill bookmaking um, company. And so I did that job for uh, a few years. And then in the winter, I would go away and um, 
uh, I would cover uh, I would cover cricket um, for on, on a freelance basis for anyone who, who wanted either broadcast or or, or or written reports. So I did that for three or four years, and then while I was doing that job, um, I came to the attention of uh, Sky Sports. The executive producer, a man called John Gaylard, wonderful man. He offered me a job um, as the statistician on the uh, on on the broad for the broadcast. So I did that job for three years, and then uh, that that allowed me to come to the attention of the ECB. Now, by this stage, I'd been working uh, around the England team as either a broadcaster or or a journalist for six or seven years. So the ECB asked me. They said, "Well, look, we we've got to a stage now where we've got so many media." And we need a media manager. You're known by all the, all the journalists. You're known by um, quite a few of the players as well. Would you be interested in that job? And I said, yeah, okay. So I became the ECB's first touring media manager, first full-time touring media manager. So I did that job. I started that job midway through the Ashes series of 1997. And for those of you who remember that series, it was just about the time when England fell apart. Um, having started great time to start yeah absolutely perfect yeah so um and that set the tone for me doing that job for three years actually i <laughs> I, I watched england lose all over the world with the with, with the occasional um, the occasional victory just to spice things up so uh, my last tour with the england team was the ashes tour of 1998 99 and um uh, cricket australia had uh, or the acb as it was then had a chap called patrick Keane who was working as media manager. Now, I'd worked alongside Patrick in the press box when I was filing for the Reuters news agency, and Patrick was filing for Australian uh, Associated Press, AAP. Um, so we'd known each other quite well. Um, and Patrick, at the end of the, the Ashes tour, rang me up and said, thanks for everything this summer. Um, just to let you know, I'm, I'm leaving the role at Cricket Australia. You go to AFL. Uh, go to AFL, exactly. I think he's still there. He is, yes, he He's is. He's been a stalwart of the AFL for he has, a long, long yeah. time. So he, he went off to the AFL. So I, it took me about five minutes to think about it. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I apply for that job? Because I've, I, I know how to do the job as media manager. Heck, I've done it for three years for the England team. Uh, and wouldn't it be nice to actually go somewhere where the team wins occasionally? <laughs> so um, I got in touch with, um, with, with the ACB. And they, they gave me an interview. And um, the interview I actually had was during the World Cup of 1999. You remember the second stage of the World Cup, which yeah. Australia just squeaked into. The famous South Africa semi-final. Yeah, exactly, that, that tournament. But during that second stage, England, England of course, had been knocked out in the first round. I, uh, I was interviewed by Malcolm Speed uh, at, the, um, uh, at the, the team hotel in London. So I was interviewed by him, and then I had a second interview over the phone, and then they offered me the job. And um, at the end of that summer, I jumped on a plane and, um, and, uh, and joined Cricket Australia. Straight to Melbourne? Straight to Melbourne. I had a couple of weeks at the, um, the hotel at the bottom of Jollymont Street. Yes, I remember yes, the, I know the one, the, the Seabull or whatever it's called. Yep, yep, next to the railway tracks. Yep, that's the one. I had a couple of weeks there and uh, found myself some accommodation. I, I had this flat for a year, and then I just realised it was absolutely pointless to have this flat, so I, I gave it up. I, I know where the, I know where this is going. 
Well, uh, well, I, 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 you just spent the whole time on the road, and there was only very few times that you spent in Melbourne. Um, so what I did, I ended up sharing, as, as you'll remember, I ended up sharing with the team manager, Steve Bernard. He had a place on Punt Road, which um, a, a friend of his had given him for a, a peppercorn rent. Um, and so he said, well, look, you know, I'm on my own there. Wouldn't you like to come and uh, have a look? So I, I went along one evening and had a look at the place. And I thought, well, this is all quite jolly. Um, so I said, yes, I, I, I'll, I'll come along and share with you. Now, the mistake I made was that I'd viewed the place at night. I didn't realise, because all the lights were on in the house when you went in, didn't realise that there weren't actually any windows there. It was on Punt Road, though. It, did, it was such a busy road. Yeah, well, uh, we didn't know anything about how busy Punt Road was because we we were one of the uh, we were one of the uh, the houses which has got those whopping great advertisement boards on <laughs> on the front of their house, so um, you couldn't actually see anything out the front of the house at all because those advertising boards were covering them. <laughs> so um, yeah, so it it really was a gloomy place. There was a little skylight uh, up at the top of the uh, up at the top of the apartment. Um, which which let in a chink of light. It was a bit like one of those um, one of those prisons in in nineteenth century France, you know, where where you just look up and and see the sun occasionally and think, oh, I bet it's nice outside. I wish I was there. Uh, um, my my imagination must be going away from me. I thought that it was also above a a house of ill repute. I thought it there was. Were... It was. Yes. Yes. It was. <laughs> yes. In fact, I think it was the, the house of ill repute was two doors down. But how often were you and Steve or, or Brute as everybody knew him? How often were you even there? You must have been on the road 200 days a year. Oh, it was hopeless, yeah. I mean, even, even that was a waste of time, having that apartment. Um, Maybe. Did you ever count? It must have been more than 200 days a year that you were on the road. It must have been. I mean, the, the, those, those particular... I mean, the, the funny thing was, the reason I took the job with Cricket Australia was... Um, they promised that I would travel less than I'd done with uh, the England team because the England team being a Northern hemisphere side, of course, you have a situation where, you know, that they play through the Northern summer and then everyone else is playing in the Northern winter. So naturally England, England go away. Um, So, you know, you're literally, you are literally, you get, you get in in England, you get in a car at the beginning beginning of May, you fall out of the car at the end of September you have a couple of weeks off, and then you get onto a plane in October and you fall off the plane in, in, in March, you're a couple of weeks off, go into the office for a couple of weeks and then you're back to it again. So uh, having watched England lose all over the world and doing that at the same time, I thought, well, I've had enough of that. So Cricket Australia said to me, said, well, you know, when you take this job, you are aware, aren't you, that our media manager doesn't tour overseas? And I said, yes, yes, that, that's one of the reasons, one of the attractions for me. So they said, well, you know, during the winter, you'll be working on the annual report. You'll, you'll, we, we, we're just starting up a website, so you'll be working on that. You'll be based in Melbourne in the office. I said, yeah, that's great. And at the end of that summer, you might remember that um, uh, there was a tour to New Zealand and um, of course, there aren't that many journeys in New Zealand. So um, I thought, well, this is great. I won't have to go on that tour. And then um, they said, ah, ah, I think, you know, look, Shane Warne's about to go past Dennis Lilly's record. I think that'll happen on the New Zealand tour. You, you better go. You better go to New Zealand, Brian. So, OK, I'll go to New Zealand. So I went to New Zealand, came back from New Zealand. Then 
there was a period um, of a couple of weeks. And at that point, there were going to be three one-day internationals against South Africa in South Africa. Oh, don't have to go to those. So three one-day internationals doesn't matter. On the eve of the three one-day internationals, on the eve of the team departing, you might remember a small story broke about um, Hansi Cronje. And all of a sudden, all hell broke loose. And it's, oh, blimey, Brian, get on the plane. Get on the plane. There's going to be heaps of media there. Get on the plane. So I went to the three one internationals in South Africa. So having joined the ACB on the basis that I was never going to tour, um, I'd actually gone on every single tour <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, that, that had taken place. Yes. And it's, uh, so at that point, I said, look, uh, you know, I, I've, I've done it for three years. As you said, you're on the road for 200 250 days a year I'd had enough of that so uh, I decided I decided to hand in my resignation which I did but it's a funny thing it's a bit like a drug actually working in elite sport and you think to yourself the grass is always greener on the other side and you think oh dear me you know I'm in a hotel room every night and uh, you know it's relentless the calls come through to you at all hours of the day and night and you know, it's pretty exhausting. But then when you, you, you step off the treadmill, you realise that, you know, it, it's, it's actually working in elite sport and alongside the players that I worked alongside was, a, was an absolute privilege. You know, when, when I think about working with Steve War and Mark War and Shane Warne and um, Glenn McGrath and Jason Gillespie and, you know, the list goes on and on and on, Ricky Ponting. I thought, well, you know, I'm they were enjoyable aspects to it as well, weren't they? You, you wrote biographies for a number of those players. I did, I, I did. All books are available at uh, all good bookstores. Um, they're probably all in the remainder pile now, actually. You gave me the Ponting one and signed it, but I don't think he personalised it. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. When you moved to Melbourne, I've got to ask you, I know you are, you're a big uh, Leeds United fan. Yes probably more interested in, in the, the, the exploits of Tony Yeboa than you are in the exploits of an Australian footballer. And by the way, for people who don't know Tony Yeboa, his highlights are worth watching. But find Tony Yeboa on YouTube. Were you surprised at how ravenous the appetite and the support for Australian football was when you moved to Melbourne? First thing I did, I went out and bought a triple pack of videos. It was the, it was the sensational 70s. Uh, the electrifying 80s and uh, the 90s dash the decade that delivered because they couldn't think of anything that rhymed with 90s obviously (laughs) (laughs) so Bruce McAvenny is there um, uh, piloting us through Um, that really was fantastic actually I, I just had a weekend of sitting there watching these videos because look I thought you know I I I've moved to a place where you know, uh, Australian rules football is everything. So I really have to understand um, what it's all about. Because of course, whenever I've been to Australia in the past, it'd always been the summer. So when I actually moved to Melbourne, first thing I did was to get those three videos, sit and watch them, and, and just get a feel for what the sport was all about. So that it meant um, I could get an understanding for, um, for, um, for, for what Melbournians liked. And in fact, I was very lucky Uh, Within a couple of weeks of arriving at the ACB, I actually got to the grand final in 99. uh, And that was North Melbourne Melbourne beating um, beating Carlton in the the, uh, final. Sorry, sorry, Carlton. Uh, (laughs) um, So, uh, and of course, um, 
who was the um, Wayne Carey, Wayne the Duck Wayne Carey, Carey the, the King, yes. Um, uh, and of course, uh, he was someone uh, as well. I'm sure, as your listeners remember, he um, he transcended the the news cycle and the sports time. pages as well, didn't he? He yes, made it he, to the front page. He made it to the front ten pages one year, yeah, actually. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but he yeah, we'll, um, gloss, we'll gloss over that one for legal yeah, reasons. Yeah, we will. So, but I mean, AFL now it's it's a full time. It's 365 days. They've just they've just devoured the entire news cycle for, for better and worse uh, but and and, and, the, and the internet the, the internet doesn't help with that and no, it um, and also the something that's changed in the time that i've worked in the media and worked as a journalist um the internet is one thing obviously but also uh, what you might call the 24-hour news cycle in that now uh, well, let me give you an example when I was covering an, an England cricket tour in the Caribbean in 1994. Now, this was the tour that uh, Brian Lara got his, um, uh, he got past Gary Sober's record of 365. He got 380. But um, I remember I was filing for a, a news agency called AFP, Agence France Presse. And I would file back to um, Paris so I would send my I would send my uh, copy using my laptop, a uh, very early type of laptop. Uh, in effect, it was like faxing your copy back. Um, so you'd you'd send your story back, and then you would make a check call to Paris to make sure that the copy had landed, um, it got to the other end, and it was it wasn't hadn't been corrupted, and so people could read it, and then that was it. So that was. Uh, you you worked like you worked like a mad person for the whole of the day in the Caribbean, because uh, the Caribbean was four or five hours behind Paris, and then you shut your laptop at seven o'clock uh, in in the Caribbean, whichever island you were on, which was midnight or one o'clock um, in in Paris, and at that point, if someone had broken their leg, okay, never mind, I'll file it tomorrow. Because you know there there were no newspapers beyond that point to to file the story to, yeah. Whereas yep. now it went dark basically. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas now uh, with the internet, you know, every literally you're live every single second of every single minute of every single hour of the day because you know you've got social media, you've got so stories are breaking um, at any time of the day or night. So that's something that's certainly changed from from when I when I started in the media. You you've toured almost every cricket playing country there is. Where, where's your favourite place that you've ever toured or your favourite tour that you, that you went on? What a good question. I think um, my favourite tour would be, uh, as a media manager, my favourite tour was undoubtedly the Ashes of 2001 because A, you're involved with a winning team. B, it was a place I knew very well because it was England. And C... I was surrounded by players whose names will go down in the history of the game as absolute greats. And I had a ringside seat for, for what they were doing. Um, the team was winning most of the time. Um, and it was, just, it was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. The thing about a tour of the UK is that you get on a bus you don't go to airports or anything like that. It's far more relaxed. You get to know everyone far better because 
uh, you just drive around the country on this bus. You, you, you get on the bus in, in May, June, and you get off the bus in September. Um, and, you know, everyone, every, it was like having, you know, 20 best mates going around the country and, uh, oh, let's play a bit of cricket and win as well while we're at it. Um, and, yeah, that, that, tour of, um, that tour of the UK, that Ashes tour of 2001, um, when you think of some of the stories we had on that tour as well, you know, Steve Waugh tearing his calf muscle and then coming back and, um, and uh, scoring that hundred on one leg at the oval, um, uh, you know, Shane Warne uh, bowling brilliantly, Glenn McGrath bowling brilliantly, Adam Gilchrist um, scoring hundreds, Damian Martin scoring hundreds, Ricky Ponting scoring hundreds, Justin Langer coming back into the side for the last match of the series and, it was just it was just sensational to be involved with actually uh, and you know i can look back on that and say you know what a time of my life well the the, the reason i uh, that that you returned to my orbit was not because of the great cricketers in history but because of some of the lesser known cricketers uh, who have played one test only. You've come up with a, a really fascinating idea for a podcast uh, called One Test Wonders. And I saw you promoting it on Facebook or somewhere or other. And so I started listening and it is fabulous. Um, I think it's, it's one of those ideas that you wonder why no one else has thought of it. I think it's more interesting to hear the stories that, that no one knows. Um, and, and also, if you've only played one test, there's often a really interesting story around that as to why it was only one. How have you been enjoying the podcast? What, what's jumped out at you uh, in the interviews that you've done so far? Um, what, what's the most interesting thing that you've come across and what, what can you tell us about the, the podcast? Well, it's been an absolute labor of love, actually, the podcast. Um, it was something that came to me during lockdown. Um, uh, you're right. Everyone knows the stories about the players who've played 50 tests, 100 tests, scored 100 here, taken five wickets there. Not so many people know the stories about people who've played, just played the one test. Why is it that they only played the one test? I mean, it seems, seems ridiculous, really, doesn't it? That you're, you're given a job and then you do the job once and someone arbitrarily decides, oh, you're not going to do it again. Um, you know, as a professional cricketer, you, you, it's your Everest to play for your country. And then having played for your country once, you don't get another opportunity. You get a little taste and then that's it. In terms of the people I've spoken to, well, you know, it, it's a mixture of it's a mixture of sadness, um, joy, embarrassment, um, and, and also great pride that they feel at having represented their country. Um, you know, some of the stories really are incredible about how amateurish the setup was. Um, you know, forty, thirty, even twenty years ago. I think of um, one player, Alan Butcher, I spoke to, who uh, played for England in one test in 1979. He, he couldn't find anyone to, 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 um, to share a meal with him in the evening. So he ended up uh, buying KFC and going back to his room and sitting on his own in his one test. And then there was, in those days, they had rest days. So he lived quite close to the place where the test was being played. So he went home um, on, the, on the rest day took one of his teammates with him who, who was also feeling a bit lonely and um, they, they were just sitting down relaxing um, getting ready for Sunday lunch and Alan's uh, son um, he was quite young at the time he went out on his bike and decided to uh, start riding around the streets fell off his bike banged his head so Alan spent um, the whole of his rest day in his one test match at the accident and emergency department of his local hospital 
uh, life life got in the way, and maybe uh, yeah. if he rested, he might have uh, might have played more tests. Well, uh, I've been thoroughly enjoying it. The uh, the John Stevenson episode, the most recent one, is a real uh, eye opener. He. He, they didn't. They didn't believe him when he drove into the Oval that he was playing for England because he was driving a crap car. The chairman of selectors didn't recognise him. And he said, "The net bowlers go over there, buddy." And he said, "No, no, I'm John. You picked me." Yeah. It's, incredible, it's just isn't astonishing it? that that could happen in so-called quote-unquote elite sport. Yes, it's yes just, and, and that's that. That was the thing that reminded me of those tours where things are just things are just going badly and you're just kind of waiting yeah. for it to be over <laughs> yes. because the way he describes that test. Well, you mentioned there about two was going wrong. I mean, the last summer I played for, or last, sorry, the last summer I was involved with Cricket Australia um, in my first time as media manager was the Ashes Tour of 2002-03. England yeah. had so many injuries on that tour. And I remember Nasser Hussain was given out, caught behind off Shane Warne in Perth. And Nasser Hussain was a volatile character. He walked off the field and the camera followed him walking off the field into the dressing room, the new dressing rooms at Perth. And it showed him as he went into the dressing room, he just kicked a set of crutches because one of the bowlers during the match had, <laughs> had fallen over and broken his foot, um, which, which again, summed things up. There's so many injuries and everything had gone wrong. And he'd been given out, caught behind when he wasn't out. He walked off and um, all he could do was kick some crutches over. <laughs> probably several sets because there's so many yes. people who are injured well uh, one test wonders is uh, it's on uh, spotify and a bunch of other platforms and it's uh, it's brilliant this was a, this was a delight to uh, to catch up with you and to see how things were going and to listen to uh, some of the stories so i really appreciate your time very much as i'm sure our our audience will as well mate it's been an absolute pleasure any time at all it's been great to catch up with you as well dave thanks thanks so much for taking the trouble to give me a shout no worries Marcus. cheers all the best speak soon thanks mate